Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead teaching pastor, and I'm excited to talk on this text today. So if you have a Bible with you or an app that you use, turn to Acts 23. That's going to be the main passage that we use today because we're in a series still on the book of Acts. It's called Jesus's People. And really, it's a book of the acts of Jesus through his people, the growing church that we read about. And it's been very helpful, and there's been a lot of mission in it. In fact, I'll be honest, I'm actually enjoying the last half of the book of Acts more than the first half, which is a little odd. I didn't expect that. I think when most people read the book of Acts, they race to the front and they read it, but they don't really know what's going on past chapter 15 because it just kind of seems boring and repetitive. If it doesn't feel relevant to you, you might not be a missionary. If you are a missionary, it's very relevant to you. Today is going to be a great example for us, okay? If you struggle with the last half of the book of Acts, look at it through the eyes of how a missionary would grow. It's very helpful. This one is a little bit less on how we're going to be missionaries to the city today and a little bit more of an encouragement to us, which is good. It's been encouraging me all week, and I've never met anyone that's been over-encouraged or encouraged too much, so hopefully it'll be helpful to you. So Acts 23, we're also going to jump into Daniel 3 just for a second before we come back out. So if you feel like turning there as well, Daniel 3, there was an article that came out just the other day that proposed the question, what length would you be willing to go to in order to have all of your student loans erased, right? How far would you go? Some of you have never owned a a student loan before, right? So just pretend for a moment that there's such a number as gazillion and pretend you owe a gazillion dollars to the bank. That's what it feels like to have a student loan (laughs) when you're coming out of college. What lengths would you go to to have that just gone, Well, it's hard for us to know, but mybanktracker.com did a survey of just a ton of college students, and now we have numbers that tell us how bad people want this. 55% of students polled said that they would be willing to abandon all privacy for a year, every moment of a year, and be on TV for everyone to see, like a reality show. 55%, right? How about this one? 38% of students say that they would be willing to take part in a questionable health study. And when I read that, I thought, that's crazy. But then I thought, well, how questionable? Because I've had student loans. <laughs> They're gone, but I've had them. This is my favorite one. One third, one out of three students said that they'd be willing to sell an organ. Can you believe that? Because I totally can. Because had you come up to me when I was 22 years old and you said that, I would have been thinking, okay, listen, I have some organs. We have two of them, right? We have two. God knew ahead of time that I might need to lose one. (laughs) Maybe this is a biblical thing to cough up in Oregon and get rid of my student loan debts. They're crazy statistics. I don't think they shock anyone in here who has student loans or who has big debt. I don't think it shocks any of us. In fact, I think all of us would do incredible things in order to be outside of the control or out from underneath the control and the influence of others around us. That's how revolutions are started. Revolutions are started by some party saying, I'm done being under their thumb. I'm done with them being able to affect my life. We're going to shuck off all this oppression and march on. Oppressive governments, oppressive banks, oppressive jobs and bosses, difficult circumstances around you. You might have a crisis that's affecting you. You can't do anything about it. Sicknesses, weird neighbors, weird things in your marriage, under the pressure, under the control of others. 
The harsh reality for all of us today is that even today, things can happen to you today that will affect you. There's nothing you can do about it. Things can happen to you today that could, could change the rest of your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. And this is frightening for us. So when things start to spin out of control for you, what do you reach for? What are you doing? How do you look? Personally, I hate it. I hate being at the mercy of man and moment. And that's the dichotomy you're going to hear me use for the rest of this sermon. Man and moment. People affecting me, situations affecting me. I hate being at that. Because if someone else is in control, it means I'm not in control. And if if another situation is dictating my actions, it means that I am no longer dictating my actions. So today we're going to see Paul and we're going to see God heavily interact with each other while Paul is seemingly at the mercy of both man and moment, and not a good man either, right? And I've learned a lot from this passage today. It's been very helpful for me. I've needed encouragement and have found it in this text. Hopefully you do today as well. And just to recap it, because some of you might be new to the book of Acts, some of you might be new here as we've been marching through it, where we find ourselves today is Paul is being evacuated from a violent mob right? A violent mob of Jewish leaders who are ticked off because of two reasons. One, Paul says that Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, non-Jews are now part of the family and they're not having it. They're done with it. So they're freaking out. They're frothing at the mouth. And so they're trying to kill him. Even in the midst of about 200 armed guards, there's 200 guards that are coming in to get him out of this jam. And even as they chain themselves to him, and even as they throw him up on their shoulder and try to get him out, they're still trying to kill him. They're still trying to destroy him. Total madness. No one knows what's going on. No one can hear anyone. No one can discern what what is about to happen. Yet amazingly, in the midst of this incredible chaos, God gives Paul an ability, a moment to tell his story. And not just his story, but how his story points to Jesus, which is all, that's what his storytelling did. But the group that he was speaking to didn't want to hear about Jesus. So they freaked out and went nutso, started throwing dirt everywhere, probably cussing, went nuts. So in order to get Paul out of this chaos, the tribune, who's the head of the cohort, the head of all these soldiers, goes in and grabs him and takes him out of there just to figure out what he did just to figure out what's going on. And how they did it back then is they would torture you to get all that accurate information out of you. So they grabbed him and they were going to flog him until he said, hey, you can't flog me. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. And this leaves the tribune in a very frustrated position because they don't know what to do with this guy. They can't leave him out there because there's a riot. The whole city is in a riot. They can't torture him in here and they don't even know why they have him. They have no idea why he is even in the room. What do we do with him? So they just stick him in a prison cell. Cell C3, put him in that cell. We'll figure it out later. That's all they know to do. So this is where we pick up the story. So look in Acts. We're actually going to go one verse back and go to 2230. That's going to be where we pick up the story and continue on. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason while he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So this is not an official meeting. This is just a thrown together meeting. Again, the tribune is just trying to figure out why do we even have him here, right? 
So he thinks, if I could just get Paul here, and everyone's quiet, and everyone's behaved, and I get all the nerds, the religious nerds, to come in here and let Paul speak and let the religious nerds kind of interpret to me what's going on, then maybe we can get to the bottom of this. And that's all that this meeting is. It's interesting how it goes on. Verse 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So he gets decked in the teeth just for saying that he has a clean conscience. That's all he did. And he gets punched. You kind of catch in this story that Ananias is a bit of a donkey, right? (laughs) And he is because if you go back in history, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, says in his writings that Ananias is, in his opinion, the most despicable man to ever hold the office of high priest, ever. This guy would steal out of the offerings of the people, the tithes and the offerings of the people. He would steal just to bribe the Romans to let him stay in power. And he would make himself real wealthy. He did that off of stealing, theft. So he's always in power, has a lot of jet skis, and it's all because he's stealing from the people that he's supposed to be serving. He was so wicked that not only would he steal, he would kill and assassinate others in order to further his agenda, in order to propagate his reign. Real bad guy. And if you were in front of a court and this guy were to show up and be the judge, would not be a good day for you. Unless you were rich, apparently. Because apparently he could be bought. He did not give a flying rip about Paul, didn't even care about the law, because he just had this guy punched, which was illegal. Have you ever felt like you're not getting a fair shake? The justice is not coming your way, and it's because of someone else being inconsiderate to you. People not considering you. Ever been there? Are you there now? Being victimized by the bad behavior of someone else. You know, the housing bubble, when it broke in 2005 and 2006... Here, it's been relatively stable in this part of the country. So for most of you, it was just a headline, right? For me and my wife, it was a reality. We got caught in that bubble, and it cost us quite a bit. It cost us dearly. It's still costing us, right? Now, one day we wake up, and everyone's happy. There's no bubble breaking. A beautiful house in a beautiful neighborhood with a manicured lawn. Everyone is happy. The very next month, one out of two or one out of three houses are for sale. Everybody's freaking out. And there's a wrath and there's an indignation against the banks because of all the scandal and the fraud and they did this to us and because the banks did this and the banks did that, here we are, we're in a house that we can't afford, we got to get rid of it, we can't get rid of it, on and on and on and on. You know, being sick and being poor, that's tough. Being at the mercy of a moment, being at the mercy of man is very difficult as well. There's a special sting to it, to be not considered, to be victimized. And here Paul has not gotten a fair deal in quite a while. If you've been any student of the book of Acts this far, any student at all, is it easy? Is it easy just to ask yourself, is the sun ever going to shine on this guy? He can't stay in one place. He doesn't even get to unpack his bag. Someone's decking him, throwing rocks at him, throwing him in a prison. Is it ever going to work out for him? abandoned, falsely accused, threatened, beaten, imprisoned. And now this guy slaps him, which is probably humiliating and not at all legal. That's what's going on. I think I am at my most uncomfortable when I feel like I'm at someone else's mercy. Not so much the moment, but the man. Even if they're not wicked, 
I'm not comfortable being at the mercy of someone else. But if they are wicked, I'm especially uncomfortable. I'm especially uncomfortable. It seems like Paul has, it seems like Paul has very little to stand on here. And just by being just in the face of injustice, it gets him beat. I think many of you probably came in here today carrying a little bit of a bruise from what someone else has done to you. Someone who is not considerate to you. Someone's bad behavior has hurt you. And it's very easy to feel like that is controlling your life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for what they did. It's because of what that person did to me. It's controlling my everything. I'm at the mercy of that person is virtually what you're saying. And you're wrong. We're going to find out here in just a moment that we're wrong when we say that. Verse 3. Let's get back into the text. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now that's, that's a phrase that Jesus would use occasionally, and it would just be basically a, a, another way of saying, you look good on the outside, but you're obviously rotted to the core on the inside. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, what is Paul doing here? This has confused a lot of Bible students and readers. What is Paul doing here? Remember, this is a thrown together court, right? It's not official. It's very possible that Ananias didn't even have his special robes on. It's it wasn't recognizable. It's very possible that the room was dark. It's very possible that Paul's eyesight was very poor. I've heard all of those theories. Some believe he is truly apologizing for speaking rashly here. Some believe he's being a little bit of a smart mouth, right? Like, well, I, I would have recognized you, but we all know a high priest would never do something like that, right? Now, I think both of these are plausible. You choose which one you want to believe. It's all speculation, Regardless of the reason, regardless of the underneath of why Paul said what he did, it is indeed a prophecy because nine years later, God did strike him down through the hand of the Jews. There was an uprising. The Jews who already hated this guy just assassinated him. Nine years after this moment right here. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the day of the dead that I am on trial. So you see what he's doing right now? He's, he's cutting them in half. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. This did not shock Paul. Paul knew this was going to happen. Verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now they're agreeing with Paul because they hate the other party so much. Isn't that amazing? Hate really has no logic to it sometimes. <laughs> Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This must have been frustrating for Claudius Lysias, the tribune. Second day in a row, he's having to pull him from yet another mob, and he still has no idea of what's going on. 
Still has no clue why do we have this guy, right? I thought I brought all the spiritual nerds in here that everybody would be mature. There'd be no mob, be no throwing dirt around and punching and grabbing and stuff. But you guys can't even behave yourself. And I still don't know what's going on. So he has to rescue him again, second day in a row. I think Paul probably knew this was going to happen a little bit, a little bit of an innovation on his part to set the Republicans against the Democrats and the Democrats against the Republicans. And this is what's going to follow that night. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him. Underlining your Bible, stood by him. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What on earth is God doing right here? And why doesn't he just break him out of jail? Is that not his MO so far in the book of Acts? Have we not already seen that a few times? Or even teleport him? We've even seen that with Philip. Boom, he's gone. This seems like a very good time to be teleported, right? Seems like a good time. Why is it not happening? Most people who have spent their lives studying the life of Paul agree that this most likely was one of his darkest nights in the ministry. Darkest nights ever. Think about it. I can see it. The humiliation of being slapped by their version of the Pope at that time. Tired, frustrated, in pain, alone, totally alone, and starting to feel possibly like he's never going to get to Rome. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. It's a big deal to him. Go back a few chapters, and you'll see over and over again how he really, really, really wanted to get to Rome. He'll change all of his, his plans here. He'll change plans there. He'll cut through a city and take a shortcut just so he can get to Rome on time, so he can get to Jerusalem and then to Rome. His whole calling has been to finish in Rome, and now he's starting to look down the barrel of the fact that it is not going to happen. This is not an average night for him, but it is a night for the average. It's not an average night for him, but it's a night for the average people like us because we have nights like this. Some of you are having one right now. We all have nights where we feel like we are at the mercy of man, we are at the mercy of moments, and everything is coming undone. I think how Paul reacts to God is very important for you and me today. We see a couple things. I'm going to throw them up on the screen. The first thing that we see is Jesus' people have Jesus closely. He's very close to us. We have Jesus very close, and proximity makes a big difference. Don't fool yourself. I think some of you, that's probably the biggest thing you needed to hear today, even as greeting card-ish as it sounds, is that God is very close to you right now. Right now. I know you have a person sitting next to you, and as good-looking as they are, I want you to imagine if they weren't there and Christ himself was sitting right next to you. You're free to use your imagination. Just think about it. Proximity matters, doesn't it? He wants you to know that he's close to you, especially when you were sinking and you were feeling more and more doomed. He's not far from you. He's not preoccupied. He's cognizant and close. He's engaged. It's a beautiful passage in the Bible in Daniel 3. This was in my, my just private reading this week, and it's just been stuck to my head. Starting in verse 21. This is the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And if you don't know their story, you should go back and read the first three chapters of the book of Daniel. They're fascinating men. 
serving a fascinating God at a very unique time. It says, Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. All those things are flammable. <laughs> Everything that was just named will catch on fire if they are close to a fire. 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. These men are not bound. They're not on fire. You'll find out later they don't even smell like smoke. They are unbound by constraints, unbound by danger. They're delivered, and they are in close proximity to the creator of all time and space. That fourth is just Jesus close to them. It's called a Christophany. Anytime you see a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament before he was even incarnated in the New Testament, it's a Christophany. Some will say it's an angel. I believe that this is one of those times where this is Christ. You know, Isaiah 7, if you go back and look at Isaiah on your own time, Isaiah 7, he announces Jesus by a certain name that Matthew is going to reprise later on, and that is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. And now, of course, that's talking about the incarnation and how God comes with us, mankind, looking like man, talking like man, being with man. But he's also with us, if you know what I mean. Yeah, he's with us, but he's with us. And again, proximity truly matters. If you're on the phone with someone that you love, it's so different than being face-to-face with them. True? When you call 911 and you're huddled in the bathroom with the door shut, does that not feel different than first responders come bashing through the door with help on the way. Proximity matters. Jesus is with us. He stood by Paul. This refreshed and revived Paul because for the rest of this book, we see a very resolute strength in him. For the next two years after this, he's going to be jammed up in all different kinds of custodies. This house, that house, this house arrest, before that king, now before this king. But he is strong the entire time strong and revived with the knowledge that Jesus is with him, with him. Number two, we take courage from Jesus and not the world. Jesus' people take courage from Jesus and not the world. He says, take courage. And this is a summons that we see in the New Testament often. Why is it important? Well, because we leak courage. We leak it all the time, and we need this summons repeatedly. The Greek for this word, it means to dare to be bold, Dare to be confident and at peace and joyful by counting on another. That's what it means in the Greek. To dare to be bold because of another. And this distinct word in the Greek is only used in the New Testament by Jesus when he's speaking to someone in a really cruddy circumstance. Real cruddy. Don't turn there. 
But in Matthew 9, he says this, And behold, someone brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, what? Take heart, take courage. It's the same word, same Greek word. Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. A little bit later on in that same chapter, Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, that woman was made well. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, take courage from me. Take heart. Dare to be bold. Dare to be peaceful and resolute. Listen, I know what the world's saying. I know what all your friends are saying. I know what the news is saying. I know what your body is telling you. I know what your family's telling you. Don't try to glean courage from them. Don't do that. Take courage from me. Don't wait for man and moment to improve and stop misbehaving. Take your courage from me. That's what he's saying to them. That's what he's saying to us. God will stand by the paralyzed. He will stand by the sick, showing himself trustworthy in our very cruddy circumstances. So when we're not getting a fair shake, and we won't, and when we are getting ripped off, when we're being framed, misrepresented, even with the threat of death over our life, as we see right here in this example, God will stand close to you and me, stand close, and he will summons us to take courage in him. He'll summon us to do that. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. That's a lot of assassins. Verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Who are they telling this to? Elders and chief priests. Man, how crooked things have gone. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he even comes near. These assassins are going to try to ambush him in the short distance between the Tower of Antonius, which is where he's being held, and the Sanhedrin and where they meet. Okay? Just a few blocks. <laughs> they had just a few blocks to, to basically have street warfare, knowing they had to have known that not all of them, not all 40 are going to make it out of this alive, right? We're talking about a Roman guard, trained soldiers, trained, trained killers. This is how much they hated them. This is the level of their hatred. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, see this is the first time we ever hear in the Bible that he even had any family. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to tell you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions. Do the math here. Do the math here. Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea, the third hour of the night. That's 9 o'clock at night. 
also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. That's 470 soldiers. That's half of all the soldiers that they have. That's a lot of soldiers. Now, you, the unique thing is, is that was pretty much standard operating procedure. To, to have a lot of soldiers go like this. This isn't some crazy thing that the tribune is ordering. What's important for you and I to know here is the way, the way in which Jesus takes care of Paul, right? Rather than just teleporting him out of jail, he does something very procedural, very routine, very, I don't know, normal. Instead of a supernatural, mysterious, mystical action, we see something kind of, boringly predictable. And this is how it is sometimes. God will do both to get his mission down the field. Got a normal kid talking to a normal soldier, taken to a normal tribune with a normal procedure for a a troop transport, normal everything. And yet God is moving Paul closer to Rome. God's mission goes on. God will use normal means around us to take care of us, you and me, when it suits him best. How odd would that have been? How odd would it have been for Paul to have stopped this kid mid-sentence and say, yeah, 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 listen, but Jesus has got me, just so you know I'm fine. If you could go ahead and run along home, because Jesus is going to break me out of this joint. I just know that any minute an angel's going to come in and light and thunder and people freaking out, and the door's going to, because that's what God does. He only does these things mysteriously, supernaturally. And before you know it, I'm just like walking right through this place and no one can see me because I'm invisible. It'd been weird. He's been given good information. So instead he says, wait, what? Say that again. Calls for the guard. Guard gets him, takes him to the tribune. Normal means all around him. Everything is normal. The Lord provides normal means to us, and he expects us to use them just as much as he expects us to trust that he can do something miraculous anytime he feels like it. That means when you trust and you start utilizing the normal things around you, it doesn't mean that you don't trust God. Rather, we are trusting God to use those methods and, and, the means to accomplish his purpose, knowing that he can do something miraculous anytime he feels like it. If I'm in a sinking life raft and the air is coming out of the side, pssst, reminding you, you have little time left, right? And I'm in the middle of the ocean, which would terrify me. If I'm in the middle of the ocean, but I look over and there's like a patch kit and like water and a Twinkie or something like that, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the patch kit. I'm going to work as fast as I can without the help of YouTube, knowing even how to do that, I'm going to patch that boat, right? I'm going to drink the water, I'm going to eat the Twinkie. I'm going to pray for that Twinkie first because it's not really food. So I'll pray twice that God will bless me through the Twinkie. (laughs) But I'm not going to sit there and go, well, whatever. If God wants to rescue me, he's just going to plop down and rescue me. He's just going to grab me and pluck me right out of the boat. We see Paul doing this right here. We see Paul recognizing that God will further his mission just by the normal things around him. It's an interesting passage. Verse 25. And he wrote, this is the tribune. This is the tribune. And the tribune wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Of course, that didn't happen. That's a little bit of a lie. He didn't know he was a Roman citizen until he almost tortured him. And he didn't quite rescue him. There was a tumult. He went out there to take care of himself. 
So here we see that Claudius Lysias is still looking out for number one. Doesn't feel good at being at the mercy of man, does it? 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the very next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. We're going to pick it up there next week, but the big idea today that we're going to start to drive this thing into a finished is that Jesus' people, they will take courage from Jesus who is close in proximity. Jesus' people, that's where we get our courage, friends. We get it from him while he's standing right next to us. Do you believe this or not? Is it culture your situations, the people around you, who is it that tells you it's okay to take a deep breath? That's what it is for me. When can I take a deep breath? Is it when all these factors and variables line themselves out and everyone behaves? Or is it because Jesus is standing right next to me and I have someone in whom I can take courage? Taking courage from the changing tides of today, that's the birthplace of anxiety isn't it? Some of us are anxious inside because we always feel like we're at the mercy of someone or something else, right? That's what anxiety is, is believing that you have total control over all of the circumstances of your life, but yet you look around your life, you realize you're not in control at all. And the rub, the difference between the two, gives you great anxiety. And the big lie of anxiety is, is you can get yourself out of this, but you've got to have to think harder and sleep less and work harder you have to try harder. Anxiety has this allure to it that you can get yourself out of it. And that, you're, you're, that, that weird feeling you have will go away if you can fix it to where man and moment don't have that power over you. Of course, it doesn't really ever happen, does it? And so what happens over time is anxiety turns into despair. That's just the, it's never going to work out for me. I'm always going to be at this place. I'm always going to be at his mercy, her mercy, the government's mercy. I'm always going to be at the mercy of this. They're always controlling me. This is always controlling me. It's despair. I think something is better, something better is needed for us as the church. I think we need one who looks like and is the son of God as we stand in the fire. One who is standing close. One who breaks our bonds off. One that we can take courage in. It's the gospel for us. The gospel is that Emmanuel, God with us, came to us, living among us, not acting like us. He came to us, going before us, trusting, taking courage in his Father, even though he was tempted, just like you and me, to take courage from everything around us. The overwhelming tide washing over us, trying to convince us we needed to trust other things, that God was not worth being trusted. He was tempted, to, he was tempted the same way. That's what it says in the Bible. But he found trust in his father, living a very perfect life. And when he 
submitted that perfect life, when he gave that perfect life, he defeated sin, he defeated death, he defeated all that frightens you, all that threatens you, all your villains. He overcame them. It's the beauty of the gospel. Not only did he trade places with you, not only did he break you out of prison, he defeated everything that creates that anxiety. John 16, 33 is a very good, very good verse for us today. If anyone's going to a tattoo parlor today, get this one put on right here, okay? <laughs> I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In man and moment, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Take heart because I have overcome the world. We get our courage from the overcomer of the world. That's where we go. It's the well from which we drink. We trust the Lord that can open doors miraculously or very predictably. We trust the Lord that can bring an angel and rescue us anytime he feels like it or just using something very normal and kind of ordinary. We trust him. How are we doing? How are we doing here? Are you trusting creator or creation? You know, in Psalm 20, we see David as the psalmist, and he says, some trust in chariots, and we've all grown up, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand up upright. Fifty times. 50 times in the Psalms, the psalmist tells us where to anchor our trust and our courage. It's amazing. I think some of you today are feeling a bit paralyzed, imprisoned, blind, in the fire, in a lion's den, dark night of the soul. You fill in the blank. What you need to hear as you worship God today, as you sing, as you pray, as you take communion, you need to know that God is with you. Really think about that. Don't just go, yeah, I know he's with us. He is with you. He's not preoccupied. He's not aloof looking at someone else with his back turned to you. He is with you. And his words are take courage. Don't take courage if your problem goes away. Don't take courage if that person goes away. Take courage even if it gets worse. Take courage in him. Some of you are having a hard time doing that. You're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the faith to trust God. You know, the Holy Spirit will do that. The Holy Spirit will bring you faith, which is a gift from God to man. We don't work that up. Contrary to popular belief, that is a gift given to mankind. Okay? Faith is a gift. Ask God, very simply, for the gift of faith to believe that we can really be courageous from him. That we could be at peace. That we could be confident, bold. Not because of what the world tells us, but because of what he has done and he'll do it. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to go ahead and cut it here. But listen, some of you, you just needed to be reminded of that today, and I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're encouraged. I know this has really helped me the more I've spent time on these passages. If you find yourself in a place where you feel like you're at the mercy of man in moment, go back and look at those passages and pray and ask God for faith. 
Some of you are lost right now, and when I say lost, I mean you're meandering. You're very far from Jesus, and you don't even know what it means to be close to Jesus, right? You would, you would maybe even be open enough to say, I am not a Christian. But what we're talking about here, when we say trusting, you've been trusting your whole life in chariots and in horses, your might, your brilliance, your strength. You've been trusting in different things. Salvation is trusting in the Lord. It's dropping all the things that you've been trusting in and trusting in the Lord. Repenting, not just from the sins you do, but from the fact that you're a sinner. Repenting from those and calling Jesus Lord in your life. And tonight, tonight, I didn't preach that long. This morning, (laughs) this morning, that might be what God is doing in you. And you don't even know what to say. It's just something's buzzing around. You don't know how to pray that kind of thing. You don't even know if you should be praying that kind of thing. You, you, don't, you need someone to talk to. Then there are people here for you to talk to after the service. Right? I'll be walking around. Wes will be walking around. The other guy that was up on stage, talk to one of us. We'd love to help you. Right? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for being so good to us. Lord, that we have our various fires and they all look different. But we're not in there alone. You, the Son of God, stands in close proximity to us, right there, engaged, watchful. You're not bored with us, but you're excited. You're excited to engage us. And Father, we don't deserve any such thing. We don't deserve any of that. We deserve to be in perpetual anxiety. That's what we, that would be justice, as if we were always at the mercy of wicked men and wicked moment and and despair and depression and anxiety were just our normal day. That's what we deserve. That would be justice. But you came that we could take courage in you. So, Father, thank you for being so good and kind and noble to us. We just pray that as we worship that you would work on our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give faith to those to really believe. Not just see it on a page and say, yeah, 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 God's, God's good. I could trust in him. I get my courage from him. But really believe it. And that even this week as they're up against it and they're staring in the face of a man or a moment that says, I have control over you. I will affect you. That we could look back and say, nothing affects me unless the Lord affects me. I am not at the mercy of man or moment. I'm only at the mercy of God who is on high, my creator. Lord, let it not just come out of our mouths, but let it come out of our hearts. We love you. We love you. It's in your name we pray.